Let's continue that prayer right now, shall we? Father, that song touches on almost every level of need and concern. And what we fully recognize can only be done by your power and your strength. That's why, Lord, it's a, it's a plea. It's an urgent cry, an urgent prayer. Do it, Lord. Because if you don't do it, nothing will happen, of course. And Father, even in this room, represented by the people here, there are so many urgent pleas of, Lord, please do it. Please save my son or my daughter or my mother, my father, my, my grandparent, my aunt, my uncle, my neighbor, my co-worker. Lord, we just cry out to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would remove the, the scales that are blinding eyes that refuse to see the truth. Blinded by the evil one. I pray, Father, that you would choose to unstop ears that will not listen and so be saved. I pray, Father, that you would soften hardened hearts that, that make no room for the seed of God to be planted. I pray, Father, that, that you would bring to yourself an awareness of your, uh, uh, among those who refuse to look around and see the greatness of creation and, and recognize that there must be a great God creator. I pray, Father, that you would work in our own hearts, in the areas that we have shut you out from, in the smorgasbord of scripture that we have chosen to dine from, in the behaviors, Lord, that we have excused ourselves for. Please, Lord, do your powerful work in those areas of our lives, and may we cooperate fully. So, Lord, now as we dine upon your word, give us hungry hearts. May we feast upon it. May it strengthen us and grow us. May we, in a greater way, reflect the glory of Christ because we've spent time with you today and spent time in your word and prayer and singing, lifting up our hearts having you fill our lives with the presence of God. Lord, fill us with your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm so glad to hear that my pastoral teammates listen attentively to almost every word I say on Sunday mornings. And as a result... They got me my own personal mirror this week. My own personal magnifying mirror. So, am I looking better? I was able to exfoliate a little this morning. And uh, there you go. And I'm so pleased with, with this gift and the spirit with which it came. That I'm just going to mention this morning Mercedes-Benz. I'm, I'm not going to go any further than that. I'm just going to mention, I'm just going to throw that out there. And uh, I'll let you know what happens next week. Well, I hear the rustling of Bibles, I think. And that I like to hear. We're going to look at James chapter 1, a couple of verses this morning. Verses 26 and 27. In the area of religion. 
under the topic, your religion matters. Now, I know some of you right away are saying, wait a second. We don't use that word anymore in current evangelicalism. Uh, Religion, I will admit, has fallen into hard times. We don't like to talk about that. No, he's not. We aren't into religion. We're into relationship. You know, we are, we're not going to talk about the outside because God looks at the heart. And it's, it's what's in the inside that matters. And, and frankly, I understand why religion, the word religion or religious people or whatever, has fallen onto hard times. Because for the most part, so-called religious people have made a mess of, as representatives of Christian beliefs. I understand that. But James wants you to know this morning that, that uh, there's nothing wrong with the concept or terminology religion or religious. In fact, parked right in the scriptures before you this morning, there it is. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. But there's good religion. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word to us this morning. I would submit to you as I read this, these two verses that there's a big place. A big, big biblical place for religion. It matters. The big question is whether it is worthless or faultless. Not should we discard it or get away with it. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's back up a few steps. What is religion exactly? Because the word is thrown around all the time, but most of us probably don't know what it is. It may be just the opposite of what you're making it. By definition, religion is a term used to describe the outside characteristics or outward characteristics of a relationship with divine reality. That's the definition. Now, you can have Islamic religion, you can have Jewish religion, you can have Buddhist religion, you can have Hindu religion, you can have animistic religion, it will all fit within that definition. It is the outward characteristic of a relationship with divine reality. The question that must be clarified is, what's the divine reality? Now, for us, in our case, the relationship with divine reality is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our religion, then, is the outward characteristics of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with the terminology. In fact, it's biblical. Religion answers the question then from the outside, what is your God all about? What are your beliefs all about? Uh, What's someone who's got something going with Jesus live like? That answers the question of religion. In in fact, James, and and as I was thinking about James as a writer and as uh, an early father of the church, pastor of the church of Jerusalem, brother of Jesus. This guy grew up in the home of Jesus, as did Jude. And when you're thinking about the writers of scripture, you're thinking about when they, um, sort of when they expressed the the truth and, 
and, and, uh, and, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, uh, the evidence uh, of what they witnessed hanging out with Jesus. I'm thinking that there may be no other credible witness in the scriptures more qualified to talk about Jesus than James. I mean, think about it. Hanging out with Jesus. And, and so I would submit to you that, that James is able to present to us here in his book, in his, his whole presentation, what it looks like to represent the Father in heaven. I mean, he had the greatest of all models. And so he sets out for us in his book, precept upon precept, a description of what it is on the outside to represent, by example, the Father in heaven. If Jesus didn't live this stuff out, James surely knew it. And I I think, therefore, that this is one of the great treaties of Christianity, the book of James. One of the great presentations of authentic religion, of what it means to have a relationship with the divine reality, and that reality being the Lord Jesus Christ. And and the reason we all know that he's talking about Jesus is John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so James would say to us, you dis, if you discard attention to religion, you put your very beliefs at risk. In other words, he says, it is not legitimate to tell me you have something going on in the inside that I don't see on the outside. And so, yes, he says, your religion matters. The question is, is your religion worthless or faultless? That's the question that we want to examine this morning. Because religion is either an external advertisement of an excellent God or worthless, self-deceived idolatry. I I kicked around a phrase here uh, a few years ago that I think is, is absolutely appropriate and describes what James is really teaching us or talking about here in his book, and particularly in this, these two verses. Your religion should make God look good. That's what he's talking about here. God is good in himself. Don't, don't get me wrong in how I'm describing that. I'm not saying that, that we need to prop him up. No, no. It's to make sure that, that how we live accurately reflects who he is. James says, your religion better be making God look good. Or your religion is worthless, not faultless. Let's dig in. Number one on the hit list here, the the religion hit list, is the tongue. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue... He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Now, um, if you think you have something going on with Christ, but your mouth, your tongue is a loose cannon, firing serious body blows at people, your Christianity is a sham. James says here, keep your tongue in check. 
Keep your tongue in check. He's already said, be slow to speak. And and I would submit to you that that James is referencing in particular how you speak to people and about people. And the reason I say that's his primary application is because he expands upon it in chapter 3. And we won't go into an expansion of it this morning. I just want to touch on it because that's what James does. And then he moves into that. We'll do that in a few weeks. But in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3, he helps us to understand what he's really talking about here. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. This particular description about slow to speak, this check, keep your tongue in check, is, uh, is with reference to how you speak to people and how you speak about people. The rabbis had an old saying with respect to the, the tongue, with respect to speech. And they used to call it the third tongue because they wanted, you to, wanted all of their audience to understand the kind of damage that a tongue can do. They called it the third tongue because whenever you speak poorly of someone, You, first of all, damage yourself. And secondly, you damage the person you're speaking to. And thirdly, you damage the person you're speaking about. Because you're never speaking to the person you're actually damaging. You're always, for the most part, speaking about the person or or about another person. Although you do speak, we do speak to each other at times, in ways that are not in reference to this. And so they had this third tongue idea, the damage of the person, the damage of a person you speak to, the damage of a person you speak about. And so in one small phrase, one small conversation, three lives can be damaged. Now, um, the Word of God... That Jesus spoke actually in Matthew 12, 34. He said, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. John Piper um, rephrased it and said, your tongue tells the truth about your heart. This is why James is digging in so seriously about this particular subject matter. I would say to you, the sound, the tongue is the sound check of your soul. Now many of you wouldn't know, but On any given Sunday morning, Pastor Steve and a group of people come here earlier than most of you do. And they come here earlier on purpose. They come here earlier to do basically a sound check to make sure that everything's working well. And they grab the microphones and and Dave's up there and and you you sing into the microphone and and, uh, that's a sound check. And and if if something's wonky, then... uh, Dave doesn't run down out of the balcony, run down the stairs, grab the microphone and start taking it apart. It's not the microphone. Occasionally it might be. But generally it's not the microphone. There's something wonky in the system. He's got to do some work some dials and get rid of that feedback. And and, and it's about the system. There's something awry in the system. And so that's why I believe that, that, that James here is saying the tongue... It's the sound check of your soul. It's just telling you if there's something wonky in the system by how you're speaking. So you say something nasty to someone, you don't get out a scalpel and take your tongue out and start taking it all apart. You could, and maybe you should, but you don't. You know something's going on deeper than that. It's a sound check of the soul, the tongue. 
So what's the sound of acceptable religion? Because that's the subject. The religion that God our Father accepts as pure. So what's the sound of acceptable religion? What's the sound of your life? How does a tongue mark it a gracious and truthful and pure and amazing and gracious and worthy and trustworthy and provider and worthy of praise and worthy of thanksgiving, worthy of our adoration Type God. How do our tongues proclaim his greatness? And, and, and when we think about him and when do we know who he is, wouldn't it occupy all of our time just to describe the greatness of our God? If that alone were given opportunity to pour out of our mouths. It's reckless religion when it puts your faith in question. When how you speak to people puts your very faith in question. You see, if that life transplant, it says in, in the scripture, we, we, we talked about this last week, that, that God has brought us to life. We were formerly dead, and he's given us a life transplant of the word of God so that, that God comes alive in us, and we respond to his word. We welcome his word, and it changes our lives. And James is saying here that that, that life transplant that's taken place, it, it ought to make a change in how you speak. In fact, he uses the, the, the colorful description here that if anyone doesn't put a rain on their tongue. In, in chapter 3, he talks about it like a horse putting a, a or, or like a person putting a bit in a horse's mouth. Now, you know, again, I'm dabbling into uh, the, the agriculturally challenged area of life that I, that I live in. But, but suffice it to say that there were some people who schooled me in between the services and helped me with my descriptions. You know, I talked a little bit about the horse and the bit, and they were like, you don't know anything, do you? And I said, no, I really don't, but, but it, it sounded good. And, and they said, well, not really. Let me just tell you something about the horse and the bit. I said, you know, we used to have a saying back in the days when we delivered milk with a horse. Now, how am I supposed to remember that? I mean, that, that you know, I can't even envision a, a culture of people who had, a hor- had milk delivered by a horse. You know, that's just a weird thing. But there are actually people old enough in this congregation who actually remembered that. That was happening. And so they said, we used to have a saying, you got to keep the horse's head up or its teeth will fall out. And, and so, so they, they went on to explain to me that, that in fact, th- this picture is that you, that you pull, you got to keep the horse up because they said, he said, I was driving a horse one time and I made the mistake pulling some milk. And he says that we were going down this hill. And he says, I sort of slacked off on the reins. And the horse's head went down. And the horse almost fell. So you got to keep... James says, you got to keep a tight rein on your mouth or your teeth are going to fall out. See, this is what he's saying. And, and for some of you, uh, uh, Paula Dent will take care of that. But, but, but in this case, you gotta have the, you got to have this bit. And you've, it's got to keep your head up. And you got to... You can't be letting this stuff come out of your mouth just... Uh, loosely, without reining it in. This is a cooperative adventure that you're on with the Lord. Because your mouth was instrumental in your salvation. Do you know that? In Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I can hear, I can hear you already going there. If, what? We confess with what? Our mouths. That Jesus is Lord. 
and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, what? We'll be saved. If we make this confession with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and I don't think that what God had in mind is that we'd make one-time confession, that'd be the end of it. Well, you know what? I told you you were Lord a long time ago. I'm not going to be confessing that anymore. I really think that this is an ongoing reality, a day-by-day confessional, a day-by-day proclamation from our mouths. People ought to see in the confession of how we speak that Jesus is Lord of our lives. I think that's what James is talking about. Put a rain in it. If we confess and keep confessing and our speech confesses that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Pretty important stuff coming out of the mouth, isn't it? Worthless religion is when it doesn't positively shape your heart. You can't see it if you have an NIV translation, but, but in, a, in, the, uh, in a kind of a word-for-word translation of verse 26, it says he's, he's deceiving his own heart. Okay? If you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, you are deceiving your own heart. You are, um, you are living a life and, in fact, lying to yourself. You are, you are demonstrating that you really don't seem to have the power within you to transform your ethical behavior. James says in chapter 2, verse 20, that that's useless You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? He says, that's that's that's, that's not only worthless, it's useless. And then worse than that in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's not only worthless and useless, but it's dead. No faith at all. The flip side, of course, is that the intention of one who follows Christ is to have a tongue that energizes and inspires people. Inspires people to higher living and that God is worth it. So use your, cho- use your tongue as a health check. It is a sound check for your soul. He says something else here. There's three things I want to share with you this morning that you need to deal with. Number two is this. There's a kind of outward activity that our father approves of toward his children and toward his creation. Religion that God our father, James James says God our father, he wants that to resonate in your head and in your heart. God our father. What's a father like? What's a father like toward his children? What's, a, what's the father, God, of creation like? He, it says religion that he accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Stop there. God the Father has demonstrated 
from the first page of the Bible to the last page of the Bible that he absolutely cares about his creation. He's proven from the first page of Scripture to the last page of Scripture that he absolutely cares about his children and loves them. That he's a God of mercy and compassion and care and concern and charity and help. And James is trying to get across the point that the Father has entrusted to his people the vice regency of his creation, which means the responsibility to take care of his creation. And to go more specifically, to take care of people in need. Regardless of what else you do or whatever talents or gifts or or abilities that you have, God the Father wants us to be concerned about his children and about his creation. He has given us the assignment of taking care of it. It's our first priority. However that engineers itself in your life, however God using giftedness and talents and abilities and opportunities in your life, however he focuses that, it, it is the one major concept. It is about taking care of God's creation. In fact, we each, each day need to ask ourselves, each minute almost we need to ask ourselves, am I doing the best thing I could be doing right now in light of my responsibility to take care of God's creation? Is this a frivolous activity or is this, is this something that I'm, I, I'm actually, um, I'm actually uh, qualifying the reason that God has created me in the first place? That, uh, that I'm, I'm legitimizing the fact that I'm still breathing air. This is where James is going, I'm convinced. And so he says here that that we are to look out for the needy and for the hapless. And he uses orphans and widows as a poster children for this concept. Why? Because he, he singles them out because they are most at risk. They represent people who are alone. People who don't have a posse to take care of them. They don't have advocates. They have no clout. They're vulnerable. They can be taken advantage of, just like the teachers of the law did that that so disgusted Jesus when he was talking about the widow's might. He said, these are the people who devour widows' houses. This is so far from the heart of God. It's all about the distress of being locked into a dead end. No social mobility, no benefits, no break, without hope, being marooned in the margins of life, needing someone to feel deeply enough to give you a hand up. You know, as I've taught you this chapter, chapter one, it's in the context of tests and trials. James starts off, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. I am so convinced as I continue to study this now that that part of the test and trials reality is to teach us about caring deeply 
for one another. The reason God reaches out and just upsets our apple cart every so often, why he tweaks our perfect lives, is that he might resensitize those pain receptors that have gone callous or dead and we no longer feel or, or, hurt or, or, or think deeply or are able to touch deeply. And every so often he reaches out and he just upsets it just a little bit. And we remember, oh yeah, that's what it feels like to be alone. That's what it feels like to be really hurt. That's what it feels like to be misunderstood. That's what it feels like to be vulnerable. That's what it feels like when everybody walks out on you. That, that's what it feels like. It's like when you get this horrible sunburn one day in the beach. And you know the next day you go out and the sun just feels horrible. The sun that felt so good the day before. Those pain receptors that had gone to sleep all day while you were sunning on the beach. They come back to life. It says there to care for them in their distress. I'm convinced that the tested and the tried are shaken to shape the social conditions of people in distress. I think that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, when he said, we are dis- if we are distressed, it is for your comfort. You know, um, it wasn't until a very special uncle of mine passed away that I really understood in my heart the value of friends and family who would gather around and just be there to comfort you. It it was then that at visitation, I had never experienced, I'd always been on the other side of visitation. I'd never been on this side of visitation where people were coming for you. That I realized, and Lynn and I remember, we talked about it. I said, man, this really matters. You don't have to say anything or very much. It just matters that you are touched deeply and you care. And by going, you express your care. And it means so much to those who are in distress. Unfortunately, the translation in the NIV is not like the King James. In, the, in this case, I love the King James translation. It says to visit orphans and widows in the distress. And that word visit is not, is not so much about, hey, look at here, I'm here bodily, I'm here physically. No, it, it's a word that's loaded and freighted theologically. When God visits his people, when, when Jesus was standing in Jerusalem, weeping over Jerusalem, saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only understood that this is the time of your visitation, this is the meaningful time where God, he's not just throwing some money at you or throwing some sunshine at you or, or, or some happy sprinkly dust. He's actually engaging himself in your plight, in your situation. That's the word that's being used here. It's not about throwing a little bit of money or or, or, or a, a, a quick prayer from a distance. It's about going and making sure that everything's okay. That's the heart of God. That's when religion is acceptable to God. That's religion that's faultless.
throughout the scriptures, God has made it abundantly clear with respect to compassion and care and mercy and justice. In Isaiah 1, 15 to 17, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. This is who our father is. Amos 5.24, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Our God connects almost synonymously righteousness and justice. It's very hard to separate them in the scriptures. The right ways of God are the just ways. The just ways are the right ways. In Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 to 24, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Basically, he is saying to all of us, Please, please, please do not be a salesman for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't go out and market me unless you really understand me. And to understand me is to understand my heart. My heart is about kindness and justice and righteousness. These are the things I delight in. Of all the other busy things you engage in, please know this. That this is when religion makes an impact. It's when you truly represent my heart. Futile religion flirts with the idolatry of double-mindedness in trials. People whose tests come their way and they never learn from them. They absolutely turn from them. They invent some sort of fantasy and idol and choose that even if it's sinful instead of facing it head on. Lord, what are you talking to me about? What are you teaching me about? What nerve are you touching? In what deep place do you want to touch me that I might be able to touch someone else? But faultless, faultless religion turns tests into reminders that the distressed need advocacy. I would submit to you that belonging to God involves more than being good personally. It means being an activist in human rights and righting wrongs. God wants us to be more than, do more than try to simply copy what we think he is. A righteous, a just, a merciful God. He wants it to be who we are. That's the distinction. There are lots of charitable people out there who don't know the Lord. Who are throwing great quantities of money all over the world. But faultless religion, the kind that God accepts, is deeply touched to touch. Church, do what you can to shape the social conditions of the needy and the helpless for the better. 
you will ace God's test of genuine, pure and faultless and 24 karat gold. There's one last statement he makes, which is to balance this all out. Because, you know, there's always this danger whereby you look at that, okay, I'll keep... I'll just work on keeping my tongue good. And, and, and you know what? I'll, I'll, be, I'll chair every social committee there is and every, every caring agency in the city. I'll, I'll join. Got all kinds of people like that. They're good people. But in order to balance this out, in order for it to, 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 to come from the inside, he says there's, there's one, one more requirement of this pure religion stuff. You have to keep yourself unpolluted by the world. This goes deep. This is the balance. The outside inside. He's already said get rid of moral filth and the accumulations of evil earlier in the text. In case anyone got the idea that, that just a slick tongue or, or social concern would give you a free pass when your inner world is, is a moral disaster, forget it. <laughs> it's not what he's teaching. Religion is what people see, but good religion, godly, faultless religion, grows out of inner moral excellence. If you harbor inner dirt in your life, sinfulness, God's word will be turned away. It will be turned away from you, and you will increasingly become the God of your own life. You will become true to yourself. That's the big buzzword phrase out there. I just need to be true to myself. I think if I hear that phrase one more time, I'm going to have trouble keeping the bit in my mouth. We're not called to be true to ourselves. We're called to be true to the living God. That's who we represent. That's who we market. That's who we advertise. Making God look good. Those who repent of moral and social pollution have learned how easily they can become their own religion. And that's worthless. Puffing up self is the religion of modern society. Look after widows and orphans. Look after the hurting and the helpless. Look after the disenfranchised in their distress. But keep this close. Don't get polluted by the world. I think what he's telling us here is, um, I watched my brother... Jesus. I watched him wade into some dicey situations that he took a lot of criticism for, a lot of heat for, that he was trying to touch some lives. But he never became polluted by their sinfulness. Not ever, not once. So in this social action, in this justice care, in this in this activity of, of making sure you're touching lives deeply and going to the intersections of our fallen world. Make sure that the pollution of that fallen world doesn't get on you. Go stand by the mud puddle if you have to, if that's the only place you can go to, to talk to your neighbor about the things of Jesus. But make sure that you notice when the bus is coming so that you jump out of the way in time. You don't want to end up all spotted with the dirt. And that too takes wisdom from above.
Live intelligently. Make sure in your choices to engage the fallen world that you don't become fallen yourself. There's this inner reality that shapes the outer reality. And the outer reality confirms the inner reality. See, this is where James is going with this. He's not out of balance. When God's people integrate into society, serving at the intersections of this fallen world while staying freed from its evil, Christian religion adds value to society by going beyond making God's person look good only to making his ways look good as well. Calvary Church. That's what God wants for us. The theology of separation in the scriptures, stay away from the sinfulness of the world. In this theology, the theology of the New Testament, teaches that Christianity is robust enough to be here and stay clean too. That's why Jesus taught, be in the world but not of the world. That's what James is echoing here. In fact, Christianity's purity can be a cleansing agent in the world itself. Be salt and light. So let me conclude by asking you the three questions. Is your religion any good? Is your tongue in check? Are you quick to help? And are you keeping clean? Is your tongue in check? Are you quick to help? And are you keeping clean? That's religion that God accepts and makes an impact. Father, I pray this morning as we continue to reflect on your word to our hearts that there's a lot of questions to ask ourselves whether in fact we are really living out the, the behavioral realities of, our, of what we claim to be our religion. A religion that is in relationship with the divine reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was able to write how his brother lived. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to embrace this and cooperate with what you're doing. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer together, shall we? If your tongue is uh, freestyling, then you're just kidding yourself. And you're hurting the cause. Instead of hurting, we're to be helping. And big real religion is this. Private purity and public compassion. That's what makes a difference. Controlled speech, charity, chastity. For those of you who love alliteration, mouth, mercy, and morality. I think what James is telling us is this. Build the outreach orientation of the church toward those who can't really give anything back. It will bring all of your relationships into alignment. Your relationship with God, your relationship with each other. Success isn't the point. Loving service is. Father, 
we stand in your presence and just ask you to help us to cooperate with the lifestyle, the religion of Christianity. What it means to have something going with Jesus from the outside. I pray, Lord, that we would make God look good this week. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.